No, mother, do not weep. Most chaste queen of heaven, support me always. Ave Maria. Composer Henrik Goretzky would see these words inscribed by 18-year-old Helena Wanda Blazieszkowna on the walls of her prison cell in Nazi-occupied Poland and set them as the text for the second movement of his beautiful third symphony. Hello and welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and today's program is the third in a three-part series looking into the music of the so-called mystical minimalists. We've listened to the music of Arvo Perrett and John Tavner, and today we'll be listening to Polish composer Henryk Goretzky. All three composers have come to be known as mystical minimalists because their intense spirituality, slow tempos, and simple repeated motives transport listeners to a shimmering other world of sound. Let's listen to some more.
The second movement of Symphony No. 3 by Henrik Goretzky, performed for us by David Zinman and the London Sinfonietta, with Don Upshaw as soprano. This recording is quite remarkable. When it was released in 1992, it became a worldwide sensation. It sold more than a million copies. It actually outsold Michael Jackson in the same year, reached the top of not only the classical charts, but the pop charts as well. This CD resonated with so many people, and when asked why, Goretzky said, Perhaps people find something they need in this piece of music. Somehow I hit the right note, something they were missing. Something somewhere had been lost to them. I feel that I instinctively knew what they needed. And although in the symphony Goretzky is specifically referencing his own experiences, these universal themes of loss and separation clearly resonated with the worldwide audience. Goretzky was born in 1933 in a small Polish town to two parents who were amateur musicians. His mother died when he was two years old, and although he wanted to pursue a career in music, his father and his new wife discouraged it. But Goretzky was adamant, and he eventually enrolled in the Katowice Academy of Music. Like most young composers at this time, this would be the early to mid-50s, he immediately fell under the sway of the atonal movement, and especially the 12-tone serial movement, devised by Arnold Schoenberg. We can hear the influence of serial techniques in a lot of his short early works, including the Four Preludes for Piano, Opus 1. Although to my ear, his use of serial techniques is not strict. He doesn't mind breaking the rules at all. If you listen to the end of each of these pieces that we're going to play, you'll hear a little little tonal flourish that that is uh, Goretzky's own. Certainly would not have been included in strict serialism. And I think that this points the way towards his later renunciation of atonal techniques, and adoption of tonality as his primary means of expression. Let's have a listen to Preludes number three and four.
comes the last two movements of Four Piano Preludes, Opus 1, by Henrik Goretzky, performed for us by Stephen DePledge. Those were written in 1955, and Goretzky is taking his first tentative steps into serialism. As I mentioned before we listened to the pieces, uh, the serialism is, is not complete. He is not uh, strictly following all the rules. In serialism, if you follow all of the rules, then no one pitch is ever more important than another. But at the end of that piece, there's clearly a tonic, a final ending note uh, that, that is more important than the others. By 1960, however, Goretzky was making a name for himself as a radical avant-gardist, and he was using much more of these serial techniques. He was also using a lot of uh, pre-compositional methods in order to derive his pieces, uh, like mathematical algorithms, logarithms, slide rules, anything like this that could represent pitch or dynamics or articulation and then be interpreted musically. A lot of composers were doing this at the time, including Pierre Boulez and Milton Babbitt. And what you get is uh, music that's often very harsh, full of rhythmic contrasts and punctuations because the dynamics have been not devised for musical purposes. They've been devised before the piece has even been set to paper. Um, so we're going to hear a piece that he wrote in 1960 called Scontry that firmly established Goretzky in uh, the camp of the radical avant-garde, uh, beret and all. And I think you will hear this, uh, again, harsh sounds, rhythmic punctuations, dynamic extremes.
That was Skontry by Henryk Goretzky, performed for us by the Polish Radio National Symphony Orchestra. So as you can hear, we're still a long ways away from mystical minimalism here. Um, this is a young Goretzky. He's made a name for himself as an avant-gardist. He is uh, throwing convention to the winds. He's pre-designing his pieces using mathematical formula and all kinds of other things, all of which was very trendy. Uh, it's what a lot of the leading composers of the day were doing. So how does Goretzky then go from this harsh, dissonant, highly rhythmic, punctuative style into a style that's almost its, its exact opposite, uh, music that is, that is quiet, reflective, and yet charged with spiritual intensity? In 1960, when Goretzky wrote Skontry, he was a student and uh, did not have too many concerns. And although Poland was certainly a Soviet-occupied state at the time and uh, government censorship was everywhere, this wasn't really his concern. He was free to be a young avant-garde radical and write this crazy music because not too many people outside of his own circle were listening to it. Later, however, um, he spent a few years as a music teacher to young children, and then he was appointed professor at the same school uh, from which he had graduated. And now he does start to uh, get the attention of the Soviet censors. And this burgeoning new tension comes to a head in 1977 when a young cardinal, who will later become Pope John Paul II, commissions Goretzky to write a piece inspired by the Polish saint Stanisław. Stanisław is no ordinary saint. He is the Polish national saint and a beloved figure to many Polish people. Now, if you were a communist censor in this time, would you let a uh, composer write a piece of music knowing how powerful music can be that is uh, religious in nature and that is quite likely to, uh, to raise the Polish nationalism among the masses? No, I, I don't think that you would. And for the first time, Goretzky finds himself squarely in the sights of these communist censors. But he accepts the commission, he writes the piece, and in 1979, the cardinal, now Pope John Paul II, makes his first trip back to his homeland, and Goretzky, in an audacious move, conducts the piece publicly in his presence.
Part of Beatus Vir by Henrik Goretzky. Performed for us by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra and the Prague Philharmonic Choir, John Nelson conducting, and Nikita Storiev bass. This work was premiered in 1979 very much against the will of the Soviet censors in Poland, and the work was not popular with them. It's religious in nature. The text is celebrating the Polish national saint, uh, so it's nationalistic in nature. And the sound of the music itself would not have appealed to them. It's gloomy and uh, a bit melancholy, uh, certainly very solemn in, in nature. When you combine this uh, increasing censorship with a persistent illness that Goretzky had had since he was a child that led to preoccupations of death, in fact, he says at one point that death was never far from his mind, it's easy to see um, how he is uh, becoming stronger in, in his Catholic faith and it's becoming more central to the creation of his art. In fact, from this point forward, most of the music that he creates is inspired by spiritual texts. You're listening to Relevant Tones with Seth Bosted, a show dedicated to contemporary composers. Today we're listening to Henrik Goretzky, part of a three-part series on mystical minimalism. Find out about upcoming shows at relevanttones.com. We've seen in the Beatus Vir how spirituality is Goretzky's answer to oppression, this idea of the quiet revolution. He does not rail against fate. Um, he appeals to a higher power through beautiful music. Another couple of ideas that um, begin to inform his work now are loss and separation. After all, this is not too long after World War II. This is a composer who did lose his mother when he was two years of age. And loss and separation are very much uh, part of what he has gone through. And he begins to respond to texts that incorporate these ideals as well. And each of these texts also has a spiritualist answer to it. Again, the person writing the text does not rail against fate. Um, there is a, more of a quiet acceptance of it. And I think this is nowhere more in evidence than in the Third Symphony with which I opened the program. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the Third Symphony is a uh, culmination of all of these factors that have been brewing in Goretzky for so long. Um, the latent spirituality become stronger, um, manifesting itself more strongly. This uh, loss and separation and the idea that, that the world is cruel and there are oppressors, um, but you, the way that you respond to it is important. And he does respond through spirituality. I want to play the third movement of the third symphony. And I'm going to go ahead and read the text because uh, I believe that it is a very powerful text. It's from the point of view of a woman who has lost her son during the war. Where has he gone, my dearest son? Perhaps during the uprising, the cruel enemy killed him. Ah, you bad people, in the name of God, the most holy, tell me why did you kill my son? Never again will I have his support, even if I cry my old eyes out. Were my bitter tears to create another river odor, they would not restore to life my son. He lies in his grave, and I know not where, though I keep asking people everywhere. Perhaps the poor child lies in a rough ditch, and instead he could have been lying in his warm bed. Oh, sing for him, God's little song birds, since his mother cannot find him. And you, God's little flowers, may you blossom all around so that my son may sleep happily. An appeal at the end to God to take care of her son's body. Let's listen to the third movement of Goretzky's Third Symphony.
It's hard to believe, but when this beautiful music was premiered, it didn't make much of a splash. People remembered Goretzky from his earlier avant-garde days and were surprised that he had uh, so completely changed his style. Other people just didn't hear the piece at all. It, it didn't get out. It didn't make much of a splash until the recording that we heard uh, happened in 1992, and that's David Zinman leading the London Sinfonietta with Don Upshaw as soprano. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the program, that CD was a smash hit and firmly established Goretzky internationally as one of the leading composers. This uh, mastery that he has gained over expressing a spiritual, uh, I wouldn't say complacent, but a, a very powerful response to oppression through, through beauty and uh, through spirituality is something that, that uh, very clearly resonated with people in 1992 around the world. Although the Third Symphony did not get him in trouble with the uh, communist government, he was far from done with his uh, problems. The next piece that got him in hot water was not a commission by somebody who would become a pope. It was uh, of his own making. He wrote a piece in 1981 called Miserere, and he wrote the piece to support the worker solidarity unions, which were new unions that were opposed to the old communist organized unions. And so this was an incredibly tumultuous time. There was a lot of violence between the two groups. And Goretzky's response is uh, very typical of him in this period. He, again, does not rail against the powers that be. He composes this uh, wonderful, beautiful piece, very much in the mystical minimalism style. Um, we're going to hear long, drawn-out notes. Everything develops very, very slowly. It is uh, spiritually inspired, and it is a very beautiful response to uh, what must have been uh, an incredibly violent and tumultuous time. I think that the... Uh, the piece is also significant because it was finally premiered six years after its writing in the St. Stanisław Church. And of course, uh, St. Stanisław is the Polish national saint and the person who had gotten him in trouble <laughs> so long ago uh, with the Beatus Vir. The reason that it took six years for the piece to be premiered is that the government actively would not allow it to be performed. And when they finally did consent to it, they censored all of the promotion. It would not allow anyone to promote the event. But in the end, word of mouth got out, and this wonderfully grand old church was overflowing with audience members. Let's have a listen to the piece they heard on that day.
That music, uh, the Miserere, is so beautiful. I believe it is a perfect response to violence. This spiritual, peaceful, musical response. Perhaps it's summed up best in the liner notes to the CD. I'm going to read the last couple sentences. What the audience heard was the Miserere in which, as in the Third Symphony, the composer had opted against loud protest. Instead of grand, pathos-filled gestures, or indeed dramatically furious ones, they veered a serenity and beauty whose power to penetrate their souls was undoubtedly stronger than the crack of any whip. Two years later, the Berlin Wall came down and the Eastern Bloc fell apart. Henry Goretzky's quiet revolution had prevailed. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT. For more information about the program and the artists we featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bostead, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>